Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's great to be with y'all. You can find your seats. I'm going to continue the introductions. Hello, I'm JT Reeves. Usually my dad's up here, and today I get to be with you and to talk about what it means to be a man from a very young perspective for each of you. I want to start out today by introducing you to the rest of my family. We've got a picture up here. This is my family. This was on our Christmas card in high school. Uh, as you can see, I have four brothers and a brother-in-law. The brother-in-law is holding a pitchfork. I don't really know why. <laughs> the rest of us are holding axes or chainsaws, which tells you just a little bit about my family. My sister felt left out, so she went and grabbed a hatchet. <laughs> Who has a hatchet? She does, apparently. And that is my family. The next picture. This also is my family. Now, I just want you to imagine this. Uh, a church, maybe in this area, maybe not, decides they really want to celebrate Christmas in a special way. And so the entire church decides, you know, how about we do this by dressing up in camo as an entire church? I, I won't name it. It was Radius White Knoll. But this, and you are not surprised by that at all, this is my family as you can see, there's mom and dad doing their thing. Isaiah is shooting a deer for whatever reason. My sister has my little brother in like a chokehold slash hug thing. I think he's pretending to be dead. And then my other two brothers look like they just got out of the woods and or prison. And then there's me. That's, that's me, the guy in the super bright uh, red Christmas sweater with the reindeer and sunglasses on. Happy to meet you. Um, now, why do I start with some of these things? I just want to introduce you to, one, me and my wonderful family, and two, because today we're talking about masculinity, and there's actually a lot of confusion around what it means to be a man in our time period. And for me, as someone who kind of split the world between this very, very uh, axe-holding, camo-wearing family and myself being like the ugly Christmas sweater guy, um, th there's a lot of confusion. Because on the one hand, I, I grew up, I played a lot of basketball, I lifted heavy things, I split wood at a you know, young age, but I also love to sing and write fantasy fiction for whatever reason and do other intellectual things that for some reason some of my other brothers didn't like to do. So there's like this confusion going up. Like, well, what? Because you hear these two different sides of what it means to be a man, but it was totally fine in my family for me to be both. We live in a, a kind of a time period in a culture where there's, there's a lot of stuff going on with, with what it means to be a man, right? Over the last century, there's been more change in what a man does with just his average day than there has been the last 4,000 years before that. Because so much technology has changed. Just this room, look, look where we're sitting. It's a very, very different thing that's happened than the whole history of what, of what it means to be a man. So there's all these different voices that are trying to tell us now, reclaiming what it means to be male just a couple statistics for you. For, for guys in, in the United States last year committed suicide at a rate four times higher than women. The uh, educational standards for men <laughs> are lower in every single conceivable metric than women, all the way across the board in the United States. Men are just not doing as well in any category. 
And the unemployment rate for young men is the highest it's been since the Great Depression. Not because young men like, are really looking for jobs and can't find them, <laughs> but because they're not really looking for jobs at all. It's just a very, very interesting and, and different time for what it means to be a man than, than it has been maybe in the past. And so we hear a lot of these different voices, and we want to talk about three different things today. We want to talk about, one, this gospel, this message of toxic masculinity. Have you heard that word before, anybody? Nobody raised their hand. Just me. Um, toxic masculinity. And talking about maybe what the scriptures say about this. Then we're going to talk about macho masculinity and what the scriptures might say about this. And then we're just going to talk about the gospel of the true man named Jesus Christ. So let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, I, I do pray that you would, um, Lord, let us, let us look at you today. Father, I pray that you, you would reveal a little bit of who you are. Because when we look at you, we understand who we are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would quiet my heart and allow me to speak clearly and faithfully to your word. And that you would quiet all of our hearts as we try to seek out the God who made us and who loves us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I mean, here's, here's a... Let's start, start just by talking about this toxic masculinity thing. Here's a quote for you from the APA, the American Psychological Association. Traditional masculinity, marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression, is, on the whole, harmful. Men socialized in this way are less likely to engage in healthy behaviors. So a lot of kids right now are growing up, and a lot of us are kind of in this world where a lot of people are saying being male, by definition, is something that can be harmful. And so we need to really try hard to push that back. If you go to university right now, this is what they're saying all the way across the board. All your kids in the universities, like this is, this is part of what's being taught. And some of this is actually really, really good <laughs> because it is pushing back against violence in men. It's been seen for a long time. It's pushing back against sexual unfaithfulness in men. It's been seen for a really long time. It's pushing back against this arms race for status in men that's been seen for a pretty long time. So it's doing some good things. We, we can acknowledge that. But there's also some lies in this that become really confusing as you grow up in it. For one, it's trying to teach you that a, a man's only a good man if he's really sweet and really nice and kind of a happy-go-lucky guy and kind of pushes all the anger away and never, never lets that come. Like, just a sweet, nice guy, like that's, that's the guy you're supposed to be. It wants to tame kind of your maleness. It wants, it wants to tame you. It wants to make you fear a little bit how much you might endanger other people. It defines you by what you don't do. So if you don't do this, if you don't do this, then, then you're a good man. And it labels, labels mine just as an oppressor, as they exist. It's a big key word. You've heard it before. As someone who is an oppressor just by being male. And so a lot of, a lot of people, like me, grow up hearing these messages pretty constantly, y'all. Like over and over and over. And, and just want to look at today, what, what could the scriptures maybe say 
about some of these messages. And we're going to be back in the passage that we've been in for several weeks now in the book of Genesis. It's one of the most beautiful passages in all the scriptures. Let's read it together. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Let me read this to you. Just, just let this wash over you. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's pretty good. Could it be better? That's pretty good. Now, what's that saying? It's saying two really, really important things that I think actually answer most of the questions that our society is placing right now. Number one, God is the creator. Now, in, in, in old times, in ancient times, there's all these different religions that are trying to teach you like, how humans came to be. Because like, how, how did we show up here, you know? And most people would argue that there's these big titan gods, and they were fighting each other, and one of them like, kind of missed the other guy a little bit and maybe like, cut a little bit off his arm, and this thing like, fell to this weird planet called Earth. And when that happened, you were made, and that's why you're so messed up. <laughs> uh, not a bad explanation, honestly. It's saying you're an accident. All the religions were saying, you're, you're, you're just an accident. And it's kind of funny how similar that is to a lot of worldviews today. Is it not? But God says something very different. He says, no, 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 I, I created you on purpose. And I actually thought that you were really significant just as you are. And here's the second thing that it says about that. If we have a creator, if we have an author who's, who's writing our story, if we have a designer who knows exactly how we're supposed to be, then if we know that creator, then we actually know who we are. And that is really, really, really significant in our time and age. Now, the second thing that we learn about this is that the creation is actually good by nature. Amen? It's good. Male and female. God is, in his creativity... He's trying to make something that actually is gorgeous, is beautiful, and reflects him as well as it possibly can. And do you know how he does that? He makes human beings, male and female. And he says, this is what I created to look like me. He says, you are good by nature and not bad. For men in the room, that's, that's really significant. Why? Because it means a couple things. It means, one, that it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about me. When God's creating, there's, there's this key word in this passage, it's them. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. And if that's the case, then women... If the guys in the room are having a tough time and are hurt and are put down and are injured, then that actually reflects on the women too. Because if part of the image of God is messed up, then the whole image is messed up. And for men, if, as most of the history of the world, women are put down, then men are messed up. Because it's not just one or the other. It's not just about the individual image in God. It's about all of us together. What the Bible does from the very, very beginning is it says it's not about you. It's about everyone. 
And it's not just about the married couples, minor, it's about every single tribe, race, tongue, and nation. If one race is put down, then the other's actually put down. You can't dehumanize another person without dehumanizing yourself. That's the nature of, of what the scripture is saying. Creation is, is good, and God made it that way. And it's when we begin to think it's about us that everything goes really wrong. My friend wrote a song because I have friends that write songs and things. <laughs> My friend wrote a song. It's, he calls it, Here It Comes. And in this song, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. He's writing about Genesis 1. Because all of us read this incredible passage. Like, yes, we're great. This is amazing. And yet we know in the back of our minds, this can't be like how it is. Something happened, right? And so you keep reading in the scriptures, and you get through Genesis 1, and you get through Genesis 2, and then you reach Genesis 3, and here it comes. The most horrible part of all the scriptures. When all of a sudden Eve wanted to claim herself as higher. And when she did that, do you know what happens? It actually influences Adam. And Adam's passivity influenced Eve. And when one person sins, everyone is affected for all of eternity. And when one person in this room sins in a secret way, it seems like no one will ever know. Everyone in this room is affected, whether we understand it or not. So we get to Genesis 3. And Eve takes the apple, or as my dad likes to say, the Wendy's frosty, apparently. <laughs> Never heard that one before. Um, she went to Wendy's, and then the world fell apart. That is my family again. Um, so we get further in the passage, Genesis 3, verse 16 and 17. Let me read it to you. Then he, being God, this is the curse for what she and the man have done, said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. The next verse. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruits from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. See how creation is actually affected by what we do wrong? Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Now, there's this, this, this toxic masculinity gospel will say, exactly, Right? Exactly, men are ruling over women, and this is horrible. And we say, yes, for a lot of history, yes, this is terrible. But we also say the root of the problem is not we need to tame men or put them down. An article recently that I read, it's, why can't we just hate men? <laughs> How many times I've heard in my life, just women saying in passing, I hate all men. Kind of a joke, but when you keep saying it, it does something. How many times? I've, I've been disqualified from a lot of conversations just for being, for being a dude. Once you go to the academy, it kind of happens. It's not about pushing men down. There's a different problem here. Christianity actually says there's something a whole lot deeper. It's not your maleness. God created maleness good. It's there's this distortion of maleness called sin. 
there's a lot of people who, who get really frustrated with, with kind of uh, conservative theology and, and how we talk about here at Radius, like the man is supposed to lead in the home. I read a book recently. It's by this woman named Nancy Piercy. And she is someone who grew up in a pretty broken home. Her father, she says, she had two different fathers. Some of you may have experienced this. And that is horrible. She had a public father who was a very good man to most people. And then she had a private father who was abusive. And so she left the faith, as did all of her siblings from a young age. Because what she saw in the faith wasn't good. It wasn't real. It wasn't life. But then she came back because she met Jesus through some different people in a different way, and she discovered this is the best thing ever. So she came back, and she's been doing research for years and years on, on Christianity, on Christians in general. And she, she does research on these two groups of men. And she says these, these theologically conservative men, you know, they actually have the same rights as all the other people in America in in violence and divorce and other things. But then she takes apart these statistics and she makes two different groups. And the researchers find that there's one group and they're defined by people who, who go to church about three times a month or more and show just devout practice of following Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis. And she says, these people compared to the rest of America have the, let me, let me just read it for you. These men shatter the negative stereotypes. They are more loving to their wives and more emotionally engaged with their children than any other major group in America, period. And the statistics are not close. Then she looks at another group, a group that, that claims Christianity but does not attend church regularly and does not practice walking with Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis. And you know what she says about these men? Maybe take a guess. These men are worse than almost any other major group in America in these categories. They're using Christianity as a mask to do what they want to do. Now, what, what do we learn from this? These are statistics, so we take them, but we, we look more at the Word of God. What do we learn from this? We learn that those who are following the commands of God who are walking with Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis will find life, and they'll give life to everyone around them. If you want to be a man, if you want to find your manhood, you have to follow the commands of your maker. That is the only way you can be a man, because he actually knows how you're designed, and you are designed to love well with all that you have. That's toxic masculinity. Next one, the gospel of macho masculinity. I read a quote from one of the guys who's kind of one of the leaders in this sort of whatever sect thing. It's on YouTube. I have to get on there every once in a while so I can, you know, be with the cool kids. And here's what he says. And I think it's actually really helpful for us to understand where a lot of men are coming from right now. He says this. It's, it's, I think it's titled like the most, the best hype video ever for men, something like that. If I'm not doing something which is extremely difficult or extremely stressful, I'm in a perpetual state of crippling boredom. There's, there's like this attempt right now for a lot, a lot of men to escape the boredom of this life and to try to find meaning in doing something that's significant or strong. 
And so this gospel of kind of macho masculinity, you, you've seen it before. It's actually got some really great things. <laughs> it wants to teach man self-discipline, right? We love self-discipline. That's great. It wants to teach men to be strong, to be hardworking, not to be passive. This is all really good. But then it, it, it twists some of the truth because it doesn't lean on the scriptures. And it begins to say stuff like, man should never be vulnerable. Maybe you don't believe that inherently, but I'm pretty sure just about every man in this room has felt at some point, I should not cry at all. <laughs> I should not cry. It says you need to show off your strength. Maybe look a certain way physically. It says you are defined by what you do and your work and your career and how impressive you are. And it says, you're not an oppressor. It actually flips the script. It says, you're a victim. All, all the people are saying these things and this toxic masculinity. You're a victim. Now, what, what can the scripture say about that? We're actually going to look. We're going to keep going in the story of Genesis. Let's look at the story of Cain and Abel. You're like, Cain and Abel? I'm like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read it. Now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. She's probably like, what is happening? When she gave birth to Cain and said, with the Lord's help, I've produced a man. How surprised would she have been? That was the first one, y'all. And then she goes on to, I really got that from my dad. That's, that's how he talks. Um, later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. And Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flocks. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. Interesting. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Now, do you know why Cain's sacrifice is not accepted? Because Cain's in it for himself. Abel, on the one hand, is bringing the best that he has. He's bringing the best of his time, of his day. He's bringing the best of what he owns, and he's giving it up to God. And Cain, on the other hand, is holding back his best, but he's giving something else. And Cain grows angry because he's trying to do it for him. It's about the individual. It's about what he can get out of God. He's actually trying to win God's favor. And in this way, do you know what we do when we try to win God's favor? We try to control God. And if you're trying to control God, he's not going to like it. Because he knows how you were made. You have to follow him. Sin is the act of trying to be God ourselves. The passage goes on. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. And this is a word for us. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. I just want to ask you, what does this sound like to you? Does it sound like a verse we've read recently? Do you remember what God says in the curse of the woman? He says, you, you will try to control him, but he will rule over you. And in this passage, he says to the man, sin's going to try to control you, but you must rule over it. Now, what, 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 what does this mean? It means that if 
we allow sin to rule over us, then we're going to try to rule over other people. Because in that way, it's going to make us feel better about ourselves. And then the man will feel like he has actually accomplished something when he's put other people down. It's a heavy word. Your obedience to your maker is the measure of your manhood. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out to the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. We'll finish with that part. Really, what is the key here yet again for what it means to be a man? The Lord gives Cain a command, and Cain doesn't follow it. If we follow the commands of the one who knows us, who knows who we're meant to be, that is when we become what we were meant to be. And that is the only, only way. Any other way, the scripture is clear from the very, very beginning, leads to death. What happens to Adam and Eve when they leave the garden? Death. What happens when Cain lets sin rule over him? Death for himself, for everybody else. Scriptures are crazy clear about this. Cain fell to this this kind of gospel that said, you can find yourself, you can look for yourself, you can be strong, you can create yourself, and once you've done that, then you'll be the best. So don't, don't submit to God. You have to be your own. I think part of this boredom thing that a lot of us are feeling, that a lot of young men are feeling, especially parents, for you to think about is there's this desire to conquer this boredom, to conquer, you know, have some excitement in life. And yet there's also this other push from this toxic masculinity gospel that's saying, no, you you can't do any of this stuff. And so where where are men going? And I just want to say this briefly. I think a lot of men, especially young men, are offloading all of their desires onto the Internet and trying to find manhood on the Internet. And in this way falling into pornography, falling into just hour, endless hours of video games or endless hours of sports or endless hours of something or another because, because you can't seem to conquer what we feel like we're supposed to conquer and therefore we try to find something in a different world. But I think if we, if we meet Jesus... I don't think you can ever be bored. I just don't. I don't think if you're looking at him, you could ever be bored. Because he says you are actually an eternal being, and everything you do has eternal significance. And if that's true of you, your life is pretty exciting. It is an adventure, and it is wild. I want to finish with this. There was a man once... His name was Jesus. Maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> Jesus was born as a, as a weak infant. Like, what? <laughs> he came into the world as a, as a weak infant, screaming and crying, whatever. He grows up, and he is a total man. He is powerful. He is a leader. He grows angry at people. He flips tables. He yells at people. If you've read some of the Gospels, you understand that Jesus is one of the most intense people, the most intense people who has ever walked on the face of the planet. He is terrifying because of his integrity. He is a man who is strong 
and the fullness of himself. He's not taming himself in any way. He's not detoxifying himself in any way. He is a powerful man. And yet, at the same time, he's someone who is so in touch with some of his loving tendencies. At the same time, he's someone who is emotionally vulnerable. He's someone who weeps in front of others. Hebrews 5, 7 says he does it pretty often. Why? Because love that's rightly ordered is going to break for other people. It's going to break in anger because you are frustrated that other people are being taken advantage of. So in our manhood, we rise up and it's going to break in sadness because there's something wrong with this world and we're not strong enough to fix it. And Jesus walks this planet. And the terrible thing about both of these gospels that we've talked about today is there's actually no solution. The sin is still there. The problem's still there. But Jesus says, all right, I remember Genesis 1. I remember what you were meant to be from the start. And so I'm going to come and I'm going to be that for you. And when he comes, let me read it for you. And I'm not, let's not put it on the screen. I just want you to think of the most macho man you can think of. And let me read this for you. John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus. He took God himself. God was taken and he flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. Make him fun of him. And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out to him again and said to him, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Such was his integrity. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to everyone, Behold, the man. Behold this man named Jesus Christ, the perfect, most masculine man in the history of the world, the perfect human being who gave up his very body to be destroyed. Here, here's, the, here's the pinnacle of manhood. It's not taming yourself. It's being all of yourself. And then at the end of that, it's being crucified and giving it all away. It is protecting everyone with all that you have by giving it all away, by going up to a cross, by letting people strip the clothes off of you. This is the king. He's not an oppressor. He is your freedom. He's not a victim. He's a victor. He is God Almighty who came so that we could actually recover who we were meant to be. And if you want to be a man, the measure of your manhood is found in how well you know your maker. And that is it. There is no other thing. Let's pray.